Welcome to a special 58th New York Film Festival edition of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Today, programmer Kay Austin Collins is joined by director Sam Pollard to discuss his new documentary, MLK FBI. Throughout his history-altering political career, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was often treated by U.S. intelligence and law enforcement like an enemy of the state. In this virtuosic documentary, veteran editor and director Pollard lays out a detailed account of the FBI surveillance that dogged King's activism throughout the 1950s and 60s. Get tickets for tonight's premiere at the Queen's Drive-In or nationwide virtual tickets at filmlink.org NYFF. Let's go to the conversation now. So, Sam, I, I, I rewatched your movie um, for the second or second and a half uh, time this morning. And I, 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 again, am filled with so many questions and responses because you really, uh, you're really doing a lot here to just make me even ask questions about the photographic archive in relation to the the FBI surveillance, the ways that we see a public figure like MLK. But I want to start by asking you a question that you asked toward the end of your film uh, of the historians who've been narrating so much of this story, which is what was your sense of your responsibility to the material? Uh, something you ask, you know, something you ask of the historians just now they have this and you open the movie with this as well, that now we have this trove of, uh, of perhaps insightful material about MLK, but the source of it, the motivations of it, the things that it may or may not reveal, um, and the ways that it was used against him are troubling for anyone trying to, to find ways to integrate this into how we understand this man. So, so for you as a filmmaker wrestling with this. What was your sense of responsibility and, and your your position relative to to these materials? Well, you know that's a really good question, Cameron. You know, uh, you know, when I first started out making films as a young man, I used to think that when I created a film, things were pretty black and white. You know, you would create the good guys and the bad guys. Growing up in that sort of American culture where you watched all these movies, they were the good guys and the bad guys, the white hats and the black hats. So some of my early films were sort of basically, that was the concept and that was the structure. But as I've evolved as a human being and understand the complexity of the world, the complexity of human beings, you realize that there's shades. We all have different shades. You know, we're not just one thing, one, you know, black or white, you know, we're shades of gray. So to me, my responsibility as a filmmaker in this 21st century and working on this film, MLK FBI, was to make sure that you know, as we dug into this material and looked at Dr. King's arc, his sort of political and personal arc, we understand that he was not just, you know, the great icon that everyone sees, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, who had high schools and streets and boulevards and everything named after him. The man who said, I have a dream. But he was a much right. more complex and laid character. And the other thing that we want to make sure that we did as filmmakers, myself, Ben Hadeen, our editor, Laura Tomaselli, and our archival producer, Brian Becker, was to make sure that we tried to dig into the archive to find, you know, King at his softest moments, like when we had the footage of him with his family. King, when he looked a little disturbed, you know, mm. when, he, when people, when, when Clarence Jones and St. King was dealing with personal family issues, 
He had to do mm. with the fact that the FBI was after him. King, when he was at his feeling his most, you know, probably his most happiest when he received a Nobel Peace Prize, you know. So we right. want to look at King from many different layers. But we also want to look at the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, who, for me as a young man in the 60s, was this mythic, wonderful, powerful organization where they had the machine guns and they were they were taking down gangsters. They were taking down the communists, you know. Right. That's how I saw them in the 60s. But understanding that J. Edgar Hoover and William Sullivan, who's one of his right-hand men, men, their job, they felt like they had to, they were frightened of Dr. King. Like many people, many white people were, because all of a sudden he was going to upset the status quo of America. It's like right. where we have the men on the street interviews and the white guy, the older white gentleman says, right. Hoover says King is, is worse, but I think he's 10 times worse than that, you know? Right. And the white woman says, you know, I, I don't like him because he's too uppity. All of a sudden, there was a black man who was stepping out of his place. He wasn't being docile. He wasn't being sort of like, whatever you want me to do, master, I'll do. You know, he was challenging the status quo of America, which, you know, in the 50s, America, apple pie, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's these boycotts in Montgomery, Alabama. There's these demonstrations in Birmingham. There's the marches from Selma to Montgomery. They were fighting the March on Washington. That's why when when the, when the Hoover and the FBI saw that March on Washington, that's why he said he's the most notorious man, you know, in America. He was afraid right. of him. He was afraid of him. So we felt that it was right. important to look at all the different aspects of King and Hoover and the FBI. You know, one of the fascinating things that, to me, that's uncovered when you watch this film is after King and Hoover met for the only time after King said, or Hoover said King was a notorious liar. And they took a poll. The poll, basically back in 1964, 65, basically 50% of Americans thought Hoover was the, was the, the best person. Not yeah. as many people thought so of King. I mean, it's wonderful. It's, it's fascinating how you see things have changed in America. Where Hoover now is like, you know, a pariah and King is like, right. <laughs> it's amazing to sort of think about history. And it goes back to history is, is written by those who are in control of it, you know. Right. Those who are in control of it can shape it any way they'd like to, you know. And that's what has happened. You know, it has evolved over the years. I, I was saying to someone earlier, when I was a young man, you know, one of the American heroes was Abraham Lincoln, you know, because he freed the slaves. That was the, that was a simple line. But as you know, and as we all know, as history has evolved, as people have rewritten, have written new books about his, about Abraham Lincoln, he was much more complicated. He wasn't so, yes. you know, you know, up, up, you know, excited about freeing the slaves initially, you know? Right, right, <laughs> you know? right. So it's, it's, it's just, to me as a documentary filmmaker, it's always important to dig into the material, to look at the people, look at King in a more complex way, look at Hoover in a more, more complex way, look at America, which as you know and I know, is very complicated, you know? Right. It's not, it's not what people like to think, you know, oh, America's the greatest country in the world, freedom and democracy. Well, we know that that's not completely true. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I mean, so yeah, you've, you've already mentioned so many of the things that I, I wanted to ask you about because sure. Um, for one thing, for me, one of the most, uh, affecting, but really for me, <laughs> sort of devastating moments, uh, is that meeting that you mentioned between M MLK and, and Hoover, 
uh, the sort of exit interview as he's on his way to the elevator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by that time in the movie, you've already so carefully and going sort of alternating between telling the story of King and, and his involvement to giving the sort of major pivot points of his political career um, mm-hmm. from the, from the boycott onward. Um, but by that moment, we know enough of what the FBI has done to King that to see the way that he has put up a front leaving that meeting, that he's, he's leaving saying, you know, I think we reached an understanding. Um, by that point, I, I, you know, I, I think I'd seen that clip before maybe, but by that point in the movie, the way that you have structured all of it and when it arrives, now I'm seeing behind that, that front that he's put up. Now I'm, now I'm seeing behind that to, to be able to imagine what must have actually happened in that room, to be able to imagine the, the, the nature of the kinds of threats that Hoover must have been able to make. That, that for me, when, we say, when he says we've, we've reached an understanding, it in that moment suddenly seems very euphemistic. And then I'm looking at later footage of him as, as, as you know, some of his associates are talking about um, the things that, that were weighing very heavily on him as mm-hmm. the FBI kept, kept you know, uh, attacking him. Now seeing these images of his, his, his grief, his wariness, it just, you just like sort of added this added for me layer of these are the pressures. These are the ways that the political structures ability to surveil and disrupt protest and dissent weigh down on this man in a way that I can see now. You in a way that it. you exactly. can see it. You can it, see and, it in the image. You can see it. Yeah. Because you, what you see now is in some of these images, you see that King is nervous. He's, he's worried. Yeah. He does this thing with his collar. You know? Yeah. You, see, you can see that, you know, we all would like to think that all, all that Dr. King was thinking about was how to, you know, to integrate America, how to, you know, to break down the balls, walls of segregation. But as we all know, as human beings, there were other things going on in his mind. Oh my right. God! Will 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 somebody pick up the idea that I'm not monogamous? Oh my God! You know what's the how struggle? What's the struggle I'm having with, with Coretta? You know how can yeah. I keep how can I keep the movement together? You know you know as we as we're progressing forward. Why did I go to Chicago? Oh my God! What happened there? You know yeah. You know what's going to happen to me when I decide to take a stance and say. America shouldn't be in Vietnam. I mean, these were things that King had to constantly deal with. The reaction yeah. of other civil rights leaders when he did take the anti-Vietnam stance, basically saying he had lost his way. I mean, he had a lot of things on his shoulders that he had to confront every day. And then on top of it, you got the FBI creating, you know, this letter basically implicating that King should maybe kill himself, sending a tape to Coretta Scott King, to basically yeah. your husband is not monogamous. You know, here he is having affairs. I mean, this is, you think about the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who we understand now in these 20, 21st century. But back yeah. then, they were like the epitome of, uh, of uh, the notion of a, the best of America. You know, it's like describing Chuck Knox, a former FBI agent, describing the kind of agents, or Beverly Gage, I think that's this, describing the kind of agents. White men, yes. you know, tall, muscular, you know, who went to college, you know, 
crew cut. You know, that's what that's yeah. what they define the FBI. And it's, you know, it's fascinating. It was the New York Times had an article yesterday about World War II, and there were two different essays from different people. And what was fascinating to me when I was going through the through the mag, that magazine section was the essay about how black soldiers fighting for our country in World War II had to come back and be disenfranchised. Couldn't 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 even get, you know, the recognition with the GI Bill, you know, had to struggle to be able to find a job, to find places to live. And then on the other hand, you realize when you watch all these movies like Saving Private Ryan or, you know, or the Green Berets or D-Day, you see nothing but white soldiers, white yes. soldiers, white soldiers. And you, and, you, and you have to realize that it was soldiers of color from India, from Africa, also fighting for democracy. And, yes. and not even recognized. I mean, this this it, it goes back to what I was saying. Who controls the history? You know. Yes. And one of the important things for me as a documentary the, a filmmaker is to basically say, here's another way to look at that history that you might not have considered. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, something you said earlier um, was about your your own relationship to the FBI when you were younger. Yeah. And one of the things that really struck me about this movie, it was you don't just briefly make the point about the FBI and popular culture, but you really, you come back and back to those clippings from movies of the era. You really, you're really telling an important, I think, uh, a really important part of the story, which is, and which gets to that poll that you mentioned about 50% of America being on Hoover's side in this, in this MLK Hoover debacle, about how much of this is just history being constructed as it's happen, happening, like history being constructed by the FBI through PR, through PR campaigns, and, and how much of this MLK problem uh, comes down to this, this stuff about image, that this guy is, is to Hoover such a hypocrite, uh, in part because the image of the man that he's seeing out giving these speeches and doing this protest doesn't match up at all with the man in private. And of course, if, if you understand that people are complicated, these things shouldn't be so contrary. But, but, they Hoover's, are. but yeah, and Hoover's obsession with image and, and representation of America and, and what America is supposed to look like um, is fascinating. And seeing the way that the rest of the culture participated in that is really something that really just bolsters so much of, of all the other story that you're telling. Exactly. Because, right. because it's MLK story too, right? The image of MLK. Exactly. But think of it, think of it. Here we are about to have a major election in this country in 2021. And you watch the news and on one side we hear some man saying, you know, if this other person becomes the president of the United States, it will change America. There'll be chaos. Right. There'll be right. riots in the streets, you know. I mean, and 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 you know this like I do. There are people out there who buy into this. Oh my God, America won't be the same anymore if Joe Biden's president. You know, it's a, it's crazy. It's really yeah. crazy. I mean, yeah, you know, quite honestly, if Trump Trump would have probably preferred to have Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren as as people who who opposed him because it would give him even more of a dog whistle. You know? Yeah, because he could say, "See, this woman who's a leftist." This commie socialist who's you know a leftist. Look at what they're going to do with America. He can't. He can't quite. He can't quite slap that on old Joe Biden. 
<laughs> yeah, right. But the continuity of those dog whistles Still and the stuff that were, it's crazy. I mean, to even think that specifically Hoover goes to like a women's club to say that yeah. he, you know, that he's the biggest liar in the world. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't have to say, right. He doesn't, and he doesn't have to say because he cheats on his wife because he's saying it to a group of women. He knows how it's going to sound. He puts, he puts it out there in very controlled ways. I mean, you know, one thing that came across to me about Hoover in this movie is just not that, you know, we didn't know this, but he's, he's just very savvy about, about these sorts of things. And you know what's fascinating too? I mean, for a man who basically is trying to, you know, make make public King's private life, right? His personal private life is very complex too, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, the ironies. I mean, the ironies are abundant. It's amazing. Um, it's it's quite incredible. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about just, uh, you know, because. And I've sort of been referencing this all along, but I really, especially when I ever watched the movie, was really taken with um, just your fine attention to how you were going to structure this story. Because this is all, I mean, you, you have everything here. You have Vietnam, you have uh, communism and, and Sam Levison, and, and that story is fascinating. And the Kennedys and Johnson and the ways that these political shifts political in the sense of the White House and, and the FBI intertangle with the the personal dynamics, the personal pressures being placed on MLK. You find this way of both really elaborating on who MLK was as a person, but also finding the way to link it always to America writ large as a as a yeah. a political place. And 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 that as a a filmmaker and, and you know someone editing this into something coherent into an argument. I was just I just wondered how you thought about how you were going to organize this because it's very coherent and I got to say it's really you know my heart kind of races <laughs> as I as I watch the movie because I just have this sense of doom uh, and just violation. Yeah, um, those are two good words exactly <laughs> violation. But, you know. You know the, the, the process normally is always, you know, you're bas- basically trying to build out the whole story. I mean, if you had seen our first cut, it was like two and a half hours because mm-hmm. we, we basically covered so much material, but we realized that we had to condense it and compress it. And the, and the, the challenge always is to make it as coherent as possible, you know, right. telling the story arc. How many, how much of King's, you know, civil rights activities do we want to weave into the film, but at the same time understanding the larger context. That was always important. His specific civil rights, you know, uh, trajectory, but also in in connection with the larger context of America. So it was important to understand where he came from with the Montgomery bus boycott. It was important to understand that out of the Montgomery bus boycott, he became very close to Stanley Levinson, you know. On the communist, or some people said he was still a communist, and that was a red flag for Hoover and the FBI because all of a sudden they had been monitoring, you know, Stanley Levinson through some other, you know, informants, and they said, well, if he's a communist, that must mean King is a communist or becoming one of wants to become a communist, and then understanding that, understanding that arc in terms of when they was when King and the and, and the other members of the Big Six were deciding on the march in Washington how the Kennedys reacted to it, you know. And they knew that yeah. was connected to Levinson, basically saying to, to King, we support your agenda, but you can't be associated with communists. 
and the complexity. A remarkable moment. <laughs> yeah, which King sort of, you know, kind of dovetailed and, and snaked around. And then ending yeah. how all these things sort of worked hand in hand. King yeah. all of a sudden getting the Nobel Peace Prize. Hoover's angry response to that, you know. Right. King basically initially thinking that he wanted to make a stance on Vietnam, but then pulling back because he knew that he would catch a lot of brickbats. He was pissed by this time. LBJ and him were cohorts. Right, you know, right. After the Edmund Pettus Bridge, Selma to Montgomery March. And then realizing that he had to make a stand, a political stance about Vietnam. But the brickbats that he would have to face, and basically that destroyed his relationship with LBJ in the White House. So it's, right. again, this layering of understanding his sort of personal and civil rights trajectory at the same time as he's a part of the part of this larger context of America. It took some weaving, which always yeah. took, took some real weaving, and and to try to make the weaving as coherent as possible. And I got to well, say that you know both our editor Laura Tomaselli and Ben Hadini, the producer, we were all very involved in that process. Yeah, I, I mean, and you're bringing up some of the moments that. It just, man, it all felt so precarious, right? Like, as you say, um, the FBI's interest in Stanley Levinson suddenly uh, clarifying his relationship to King as one of those, that's a lucky break for them kind of moments, but also him going to an associate's home that had been bugged. I think it's Clarence Jones, right? Uh, who tells that story, right? Um, and that being how the FBI finds out about these indiscretions and that being the thing that says, OK, we're going to take, you know, we're trying to pin subversiveness on him via communism. And we've investigated that. And, you know, Stanley Levinson's materials aren't giving us what we want. That's but right. wait, but wait, <laughs> now we have this other, you know, he's also subversive in this other way. Just the, the, the pivots that just that you're also weaving into the story you're telling of just how the FBI's surveillance tactics were adapting this whole time exactly. and, and, and growing. It just really, I think that's part of why it feels so tragic to me as I'm watching, because you're just watching these two strands or multiple strands sort of happen alongside each other, where the FBI's tactics, its relationship to the White House, all of these things have to be in the right place at the right time, really, for them to find the things that they do and then leverage them the way that they want to. And then that Vietnam thing being the thing that really kind of gets Hoover sort of back into the White House and, and into the ear of the president just is really, right. you know, it's really tragic, right? Because this is MLK, this is MLK saying exactly what America needed to hear, that, that this war is distracting from the war on poverty in the U.S., et cetera, et cetera, right? And it's tragic, you know, it's, it's tragic. And to think about it, I mean, you remember the section after King wins the Nobel Prize, he comes back and there's that scene with, with LBJ in his office and someone's talking to him in the audio and he says, you know, King's going to be back, coming back to America and they want you to come to this celebration. Well, I don't think you should go, you know. Yeah. You know, and so that's one level, but that didn't sort of destroy their relationship. But all of a sudden, when King makes right. an anti-Vietnam stance, Hoover, I mean, LBJ basically says to Hoover, we got to double check what's going on there. These are people who are probably causing all the problems in the streets, you know. You know, he basically is disassociated himself because he was like, all of a sudden, this guy is going to be anti-Vietnam against us being in Vietnam. How horrible. How could he do that? You know, how un-American. How un-American. Yeah. Un-American, you know. So, yeah, I, you know, I mean, it's really fascinating. You get at how singularly 
fascinated Hoover was with MLK, with, with black politics, with just the, the real sense of threat that he felt, threat to his idea of America, yeah. um, really came across here. Yeah. Uh, and you, you also, you, you know, I really liked that you, you, you and the historians that you interviewed talk about that larger history of sexual threat, of black sexual threat, and how that relates to politics. Because I think that's a connection that, that I hadn't really heard be so explicitly made, that that is part of the fascination with MLK's sexual behavior is, is, is you know, these, these ideas about the sexuality of black men and black people. Absolutely. Here he was, he's promiscuous, you know. Yeah. He's, he's out here doing these horrific things, just like all these other black men, you know. Right. These labels that's been attached to us. I mean, you know, and the sad thing about it, Cameron, is that, you know, as we as I watch this film, I've watched it so many times, it speaks so clearly to what America is like today. And it's, I mean, it's sad in a way. That this is, America still goes through this in the 21st century, you know. Yeah. Goes through this in the 21st century. We have people in. I mean, I was watching some news show, and the correspondent was interviewing people out the, outside of New York City or California, and you can see some people still have this notion that America is the way it should be from the 1950s. You know? Yeah, yeah. It used to be. It was an old saying. It used to be in these old movies when when someone would say something, someone said, "How can you? How dare you say that?" And the person's response would be, "Well, I'm free, white, and 21." <laughs> right, right, right. You know? And so that means I can be, I can do anything and say anything. And the attitude uh, still prevails in lots of white Americans, which is scary. You know. Yeah, that that is scary. I uh, I, I want to. You said something in your intro that I that I wanted to get back to, which is about the the sort of arduous uh, path to making this movie. Can you tell us a little bit about about the you know just the production here and and sure. sort of when you became fascinated with this specific historical problem, because I also want to talk about some of your previous work in this context, but when sure, you became interested sure. in the subject and, and, and the project? Well, well, it really started about two, two and a half years ago. Ben Hedin, the producer, and I had finished a film called Two Trains Running about right. the 1964 search for two wonderful blues musicians, Sunhouse and Skip James, by these young white uh, music, music, music lovers. Right. So after we finished that film and gotten it out into you know, the world, Ben had read an article. He had read this book about the King and the FBI investigating, investigating him, written by this gentleman, David Gar- Dave Garrow, who's a historian who had written a book, Bearing the Cross, that had won, the, I guess, a Nobel Peace, a Pulitzer, I think. Right. Uh, and he's interviewed in, in this movie. Yeah, and Dave Garrow was someone I had known from Eyes on the Prize. He had right, right. Interviews one of our major consultants on Eyes on the Prize. So I was very aware of Dave Garrow and his work. Right. And so Ben reached out to Dave about wanting to do a documentary sort of based on his book about the FBI and King. And we went out to uh, Pittsburgh where Dave lives over two and a half years ago. And we did like a three and a half, four hour interview with Dave, basically covering lots of the things that he says in the film. Then, you know, like all documentary filmmakers, the next step was to raise the money, to try to raise right. the money. So we we partnered with a few people and we pitched it to a couple of places. One of them was Netflix. We went out to California, Los Angeles, met with the people at Netflix, pitched them. And we had a sizzle reel and they didn't bite, you know. Interesting. They didn't bite. They didn't, it didn't really grab them. They, I mean, they liked the idea, but they didn't see, they didn't have a bandwidth for it in terms of funding. 
So then we connected with this company, Synetic, who repped us. And then they started to go out and pitch it to other people to try to raise the funds. And they brought in a company called uh, Field of Vision and another mm-hmm. company called Play Action. And those two companies became the major funders for the film. And it took us, I guess, a year and a half to get the funding. And we did a second interview with Dave Gow after those those letters came out alleging that King was in the room and this woman was raped. And we were follow-up interview with Dave Gow to get his perspective and his point of view. In terms of as a historian, how are you going to frame this now, this new aspect of King's life that's been uncovered? And so we did another interview with Gow, and then we decided we wanted to do some interviews with Clarence Jones, who had been his attorney, Andrew Young, if we all know, was one of King's right-hand, right-hand men. And we interviewed uh, two historians who did a great job, Beverly Gage and Donna Murch, and another yes. one. A journalist named Pas- Pas- Matthew Pasquila. I don't pronounce it correctly. Maybe dropped his name. <laughs> and we also interviewed. Uh, we decided we to reach out to James Comey. Yeah, former FBI. I was gonna ask about that. Yeah, and he he was you know he you know he always kept that letter that the FBI sent to King to you know to sort of be a wake up call to future members of the FBI that you should not do this. You know. So yeah. He said yes to an audio interview, which we did, and we interviewed. We went to Texas and interviewed a former FBI agent who had been involved near the end of this sort of, you know, uh, surveillance of King. He became an agent in the late '60s, early '70s. So it took us. We basically did those additional interviews in the fall of 2019. We brought the editor and archival producer on around October, November. We finished it pretty fast. And in reality, this is a pretty fast turnaround for a documentary. You know, because the two trains took like four years to finish. <laughs> this one took a Right. Long, you know, so right. we brought on a wonderful editor, Laura Tomaselli, who had done the sizzle reel. She's done a fantastic job. We had a wonderful archival producer named Brian Becker, who did a great job. And we, we hired this wonderful jazz musician named Gerald Clayton from California to compose the score. I think he did an extraordinary, extraordinary yeah. job. Yeah, I, I um, I'm trying to remember because at, at some point in the was it during the production of this that the revelations about Ernest Withers came out? Because um, I remember, yeah. I remember, I, like I remember reading the Times article about that and all my friends and us passing it around because I certainly did not know that he was an informant before. Uh, before was it his, was it him dying or I'm, forget, I'm forgetting what the the inciting event was that that made that suddenly it was, be it was after he died it was when he died yeah but, you know I had known about Ernest Withers being an FBI informant for over ten years because a colleague of mine the late Saint Clair Bourne before he passed away in 2006 or 2007 I think it was he had been developing and researching a documentary about Ernest Withers which is now in production with another filmmaker you know. So, you know, okay. it's, it's been known, but I don't think it's, 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 it's been so widely known as it has now in this film and <laughs> this upcoming yeah. family, You know, well, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't gotten respect from this family, but they, 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 they knew. They all knew, you know. Right. I mean, but it's I also mean, just... Go, sorry, go ahead. You know, it's interesting. When we asked Andy Young about Ernest Withers, and I don't think we used that piece in the cut. He basically said that they knew. They knew they were informants, like James Harrison. But they yeah. also knew that, you know, for Withers, it was a way to make some money. It was a job, you know. He was, he was, 
informing on the FBI because he needed to make some extra money. I mean, I mean, if he, if he had really thought about it, he wouldn't have done it. But I guess he didn't really think about it as deeply as I think he should have. But who knows? Yeah. And, and he did it for maybe 18, many, many 18 years. years. Many, yeah. Many, many years. And so you see all these classic photos that he did with King and Abernathy on the bus in Montgomery, the I Am A Man picture. And yeah. As he was also informing on the, you know, giving information to the FBI. What amazes me is even if I asked this question to Andy Young in the film, with all this surveillance of Dr. King, how come at the Lorraine Motel they were not aware of an assassin like James Earl Ray, who I think is the assassin, (laughs) Right. Which is, I mean, this comes up, this comes up, I think even, even in your, you you give us a clip of, of King, um, you know, pointing out, I think this is uh, when he's in the Bahamas. And I think this is after Hoover says, you know, some damning things about him. King's, King's response is, you know, interesting that, you know, the four little girls of Birmingham, et cetera, yeah. the various racial events that have happened. Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman. Where's right. The right. Where? Where's the FBI then? Yeah. But they're, they're, all, all, they're all over me. Uh, exactly. but, but where are they when we actually, as a public, need them? Yeah, it's a really uh, good question. It's a really yeah, good question. A good question. You know, yeah. You know, you it, got this, it really is. Yeah, the, the church bombing in Birmingham, you got Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman being killed. Yeah. Know? And all those, and the FBI is nowhere to be seen. <laughs> yeah, and I think someone someone else in the documentary talks about how when King was going to appear somewhere, at, you know, this is deep into their surveillance of him, but it, the FBI's job, it was an all hands on deck thing. It's exactly. all about King. Sure. Get King, get King, get King. Right. Get all the agents out there as much as you can. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's really astonishing. I mean, really, you walk away from the movie, or at least I do, with just this, this just overwhelming sense of, of the extent to which the FBI was willing to mobilize all of its power and, toward, resources. and resources toward disrupting a social movement. You know, like that it's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, this is part of why it's such a really good thing to be watching right now, because I think this is something that we really cannot forget, that it's, there's an overwhelming part of, of the MLK story, of the civil rights story, is the political resources put into suppressing uh, Black political protests, Black exactly. politics. And, and, you know, that old phrase that, you know, when, when Jews talk about the Holocaust, American, African-Americans have to have the same phrase, never forget. Yeah. Never forget that America will go to, go out, go to any means to destroy black political protests. They did it with Marcus Garvey. They did it with, you know, with the, A. Philip Randolph in the 40s. They did it in the 50s with King in the 60s. They did it with the Black Panthers, the Black Power yeah. Movement. You know, they're doing it with, the, they're, they're probably infiltrating Black Lives Matter movement they will go to any means to destroy black political protests because for them, it upends the status quo of how one was supposed to look at America. Yeah, I, it, it's really overwhelming to think about. I, I wanted to talk about this movie in the context of your work broadly because as we, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, you are, I feel like across your career, you were really just retelling or, or digging up these aspects of Black life and Black political life historically, just putting your finger on 
these stories that can can be broadened out to really give us these more comprehensive and nuanced and complicated and sticky and you know sometimes uncomfortable even because you know the stuff about MLK is uncomfortable sometimes um, as, as much as I don't think that it in many way changes my opinion about his his politics like it doesn't make me feel any less confident that he's right about Vietnam or poverty but but you know it's it's uncomfortable because it it it, it brushes against the story that I'd been told about MLK for most of my life and 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 the, et cetera. The story uh, myth. The story myth. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. But you know, you know, Cam, here's a few things I'll say about that. You know, when when I got into the film business, my my agenda was simply to uh, become a film editor and make uh, dramatic films. Just mm. to make wonderfully entertaining dramatic films because I've been indoctrinated in American movies, American notions of how to be a man, how to look at women, how to deal with the West, you know. Right. America, you know, always right. And and then I, I you know, I was I was very fortunate to be introduced to the world of documentaries by the gentleman who became my mentor when I was early, early a young editor named Victor Konevsky. Mm. And delving into documentaries as an editor and learning to make documentaries made me look at the fact that the stories that are told are much more layered and complicated than the ones that I had learned from watching Hollywood films, like the black and white stories. Yeah. And, and then in 1980, I had an opportunity to work with uh, St. Clair Bourne, wonderful documentary filmmaker on a film about Chicago blues musicians. And spending that six months with him in the editing room, he basically relit in my head and made me understand that as an African-American filmmaker, a film editor, that part of my, my experience, part of my responsibility was to tell our stories, you know? And even though sometimes these stories have, you know, some difficult edges, that's part of the journey. And I've been very fortunate to, to, to have been able to work with other filmmakers, to be in situations like with Henry Hampton at Blackside and that wonderful group of people from Lou Masai to Jackie Shearer, you know, to work on that show, to work, to work on the rise and fall of Jim Crow, you know, to work with Spike, who's, you know, who's like an activist all the time, you know, to work on <laughs> Four yeah. Girls, to work on when the Levies broke, you know, to work on Slavery by Another Name, to, to look at the layered and complicated American experience for the Afri African Americans. So, it, yeah. you know, if you had asked me 40 years ago what I thought my art would be, I would say, oh, I'm just going to be an editor who's going to make entertaining movies. <laughs> no, it didn't turn out that way. And, it, and, and, and I thank God it didn't. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny you say that because you do. I, I, one thing that I really also like about your work is that it is entertaining. But I, but I you know, I mean, that MLK FBI is riveting to me um, because even as there are, you know, it it wasn't unknown to me. It's not unknown. Even even you know, Ava DuVernay Selma has stuff about the FBI and MLK. It, it, it's it's stuff that we know, but there are, there are just ways that you find to pull it all together in ways that just the the ground keeps shifting beneath my feet. I couldn't predict when I start the movie that you were going to go in all the directions that you're going and that you're going to touch on the things that you do so thoroughly, even though FBI is in the title, I didn't think I was going to come away with such a, a keen sense of Hoover. 
for example. Um, um, I and think it's course, one of the most interesting, you know, character studies of J. Edgar Hoover I've ever seen myself. If I do say so myself, <laughs> I mean, and and he's he's just a fascinating guy. But I, I agree with you that focusing on his again, just this single-minded obsession that he has with MLK. It really, I don't think I knew he was that like obsessed. obsessed. <laughs> Yeah, I really don't think I understood because because I mean the Hoover's history is so complicated that that I think of him in terms of the groups of people. So I think of him in terms of black politics broadly um, and the FBI's involvement. You know, I think of him and even people like James Baldwin and and you know like I think about the FBI. I mean, you know, it's it's the story. The FBI was on to a lot of people. They have a files on a lot of major black figures, yeah. and and and. And thinking about his single-minded pursuit of MLK and how tied to national politics that was, really just, yeah, I, I, my heart raced a little bit, you know? It really yeah. just, it really is like entertaining. It was a singular obsession with Jay Hoover, a singular, you know? And Were you always interested? Oh, go ahead. And that's part of the reason that he survived for so many years. He's had this obsession all the time about, yeah. you know, you know rallying the country of gangsters. Destroy, you know, making sure communism didn't take over the world. Destroying right. who MLK was. Everything was an obsession with this man, you know. Right. How, were you always interested in history, per se? Yeah, you, you know, know, like in in all honesty, even as a as a teenager when I was in junior and middle school and high school, I always did like history. Now I didn't know how much I loved it until I started yeah. making films. But I always, I was always fascinated with history. I was always interested in. And you know, the what was going on in the world, this be it in America, be it in you know in, in Europe, be it in Africa. I was always curious about it, and that's one of the things you have to be when you're making documentaries. You have to be, you have to have a level of curiosity that you want to learn stuff, you want to dig into stuff, you want to uncover things. And it's a curiosity yeah. that has stayed with me from from teenage years to now. I still had fast, fascinating curiosity with learning about people and places and things, and having my 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 particular sort of um, attitudes upended and saying, oh, is that the way the way you can look at it? Okay, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I find history fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and I have to say, a big credit to your movie for me is uh, you tell so many stories so well that you made me want, you know, now I want the Stanley Levinson documentary. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm so interested in him. You know, That's you already said it was going to be an Ernest Withers documentary, so I am. I am. Make a Stanley Levinson documentary would be fascinating. I mean, they, you know, yeah. there, was the, there was the Harry Belafonte doc a few years back that was on HBO, and there's a little bit on Stanley Levinson in there too. You know. Mm, okay. You know. Yeah, you, you just yeah, you you have a. I, I can just I can tell as I watch that you don't just drop these things in as sort of narrative pivot points, but you really have a real curiosity and ha find ways to convey even your own surprise at times, it seems. Like the things that you were learning, the things that you were confronting through a documentary that until the end is not a talking head documentary. And we don't hear your voice very often. We hear you occasionally sort of yeah. asking questions from behind the camera, but it, it was interesting to me how much of your own interests I felt from the way that you organized and, and argued your way through these, these issues that I, I felt like, I, okay, this is what's exciting to me. I'm watching a movie by someone who really is not just trying to tell, not just trying to tell the story, but who 
has questions. It's engaged and, in it. Exactly. Yeah, right. And that's one of the challenges always when making a documentary is how to make the audience feel engaged because you're engaged in it. Right. Saying, I'm presenting information. Because it's easy right. most times you just present information. The challenge is right. to engage the audience. And that's always a challenge, a big challenge to me. If you do that well, then you can grab an audience. You can keep an audience really pulled into the into the film. Yeah, absolutely. What's what's exciting to me is is you know I came up uh, under the tutelage of Saint Clair Bourne and and there were other filmmakers like me like Louis Messiah and Stanley Nelson, but now there's another generation of African American filmmakers: Yoruba Richard, Shala Lynch, Gita Gandabir, South Asian, but she's also a person of color. There's a group of young filmmakers now: Roger Ross Williams, who really mm. carry carrying on the mantle of telling these very complicated and interesting stories, and it's definitely important to give them a shout out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that this is a, I think we're in a real moment for reinvigorating discussions about uh, the complexities, like beyond the myths, beyond what we learned in history books, which are obviously very, at least the ones I grew up with were very compromised. Uh, You know, I can't imagine anyone who didn't have a kind of compromised historical education, frankly, but but yeah, I think I agree with you that we're in a moment where we have more filmmakers uh, carrying on this tradition of asking us difficult questions about our own history yeah. that are not about, like they're not revisionist in the sense that like MLK FBI is not an, a, a film about, you know, you're not, you're not giving us the, the, salacious, the, no. the salacious side of MLK. That's not what it's about. It's about the surveillance apparatus, the political apparatus, and the roles that they played in his life and the roles that they play in the national myths that hold until today. And right. I agree, we're in a moment where I feel like there are good people um, doing that work, which is so important, um, is so important, especially as we're splintering in terms of what we even find credible anymore. It is so <laughs> important to have people doing historical you know, really laying down these political and historical arguments um, in film and not, yeah. Yeah, it's important. It's important to be able to look at these things in much more complex ways than we've normally seen them. It's important for filmmakers like myself and Stanley and Aruba and Charlotte to be able to help tell our own stories. Very important. Absolutely. Um, Well, I wanted to thank you and to thank you for uh, this wonderful film, which really I think is going to spur some great conversations. Um, maybe, maybe the FBI will create a file on me, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, if they ha- I'm sure they saw the NYFF lineup. They're just combing through it, looking for who they can add to their <laughs> list. Um, but thank you very much, and I, I so look forward to your future work. Thank you very much, Kevin. Have a good day.